Brothers and sisters, would you open up to Judges chapter 3? Judges chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 7 and read through verse 31. And I'm going to give you a heads up for next week. Next week, we are going to be covering Judges chapter 4 and 5. I'm going to implore, plead, uh, demand of you that you actually read ahead, study ahead, because I am going to next week just read chapter 4, uh, because that kind of gives you the meat of the action. And chapter 5 is going to be uh, a song that is sung in response to chapter 4 that I'm going to be pulling from for the sermon. So you are going to actually have to read ahead, and I will probably poll you to see how many of you actually were faithful to my pleading and demanding to read ahead. But for now, would you stand for the reading of chapter 3, starting at verse 7 of God's Word? And before we read, let's pray for a blessing of God's word as it is going to be read and preached. And now, God, with our, our Bibles, our iPads, our iPhones open before us in need of the enabling of the Holy Spirit to speak and to understand to even cleave and to obey, we, we turn to you, God, asking that you will accomplish your purposes in us and through us so that all might know the Lord of heaven and earth. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The word of Christ comes like this. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served Baals and Ashtaroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan, Rishmahathan, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan, Rishathan, Eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel. Who saved them? Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathnein, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan. God is punishing me with this name right now. Cushan Rishathnein. So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms. And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. And the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, 
son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Funny little facts right there, right? The left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length. And he bound it to, on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Eglon, Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in the cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he rose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. But he did not his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited until they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the door of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened it. And there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Sereth. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And at that time, about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel. And the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want you to put yourself in the place of an Israelite who heard this story years after it took place. There's part of it that as they listen to the story being told, did exactly what you did. You chuckled at God's humor. This is the word of God. And intentionally, God is using the details of this story, a left-handed man, a very fat king, and a terrible mess. 
God is using this disturbing yet hopeful story for our good. We, we have been looking so far, this is week three as we've been looking at the book of Judges. And it's a story about how bad things get with God's people. Things we're going to find keep on going bad. And you're starting going, man, these are the first three kings that were, or first three judges that we're hearing about. And you're going, this, it, it's going to get worse? And the answer is, yes, it is. There seems to be no limit on the, the, the ways that God's people sin in this book. They keep getting themselves into all kinds of trouble. But the book of Judges also offers you and me and the ancient people of Israel all kinds of hope because no matter how bad things get, God does not give up on his people. And that, my friends, should give you and me hope. No matter how bad and messy our lives are, if we are in Christ Jesus, God does not give up on you. Because ultimately, you are not the hero of your life. God is the hero. As God is the hero in this book, he is also the hero in your life. And so I said that this book of Judges, when we started it, I said it is going to be a disturbing book. And so even with you're going, okay, I can handle kind of G violence or maybe PG. The reality is that today's passage is disturbing if you really look at it. Few stories in the Bible are more crude or bizarre than the one that we're looking at today. It can it has been called a literary masterpiece by some. It's an ancient literary cartoon that has a bit of fun at everybody's expense. And it has everything. It has plot twists. It has foreshadowing. It has plays on people's names. It has a bit of satire and humor. And it even has some bathroom humor in it. Literally, bathroom humor in it. And you could say is rated at least PG. But if you were there in person, it would have been an R-rated. It's not for the squeamish. Besides kind of being rude and crude, there's no around, way around it. We're also left with questions about the morality of what is actually happening in this passage. Strangely, this passage doesn't even seem to address or resolve all of our moral questions as we finish it. It just kind of ends. So as we look at what has happened, we are going to be asking three questions this morning. And the first question is this. What happened that is so rude or so crude and disturbing? Secondly, what does it tell us? What does this passage tell us about ourselves? And then lastly, what does it tell us about our God? So first, what has happened in this passage that is rude and kind of disturbing? We have the, the stories of three of the 12 judges that we are going to find in this book. And if, you, if I didn't know any better, I'd think that we, we were about to get bored. Why? Because almost all the stories in the book of Judges have this formula or structure that has six parts to it. You don't have to write them all down. It's not necessary to know. But two of the three judges in today's story 
fit this pattern, this six-part pattern, really quite nicely. And the pattern goes like this. The people do evil in the sight of the Lord. Secondly, the Lord, the Lord gives them into the hands of their enemies. Thirdly, the people of Israel cry out to God, help me. Fourth, what does the Lord do? He raises up a deliverer, a judge, a savior. And then number five, God, what does God do? God gives the enemies into the hand of the, the deliverer. And then last, the sixth part is the land is at rest for X amount of years. That is the normal kind of six-part six pattern that happens in almost every story. So for a minute, it looks like we're going to be reading a bunch of formulaic kind of stories. And you're, you're hearing, man, there's 12 of them. There's 12 judges. And that's what we're going to hear each and every week. And it looks like we're going to have an art gallery painted by a bunch of, you know, paint-by-number artists. That's not about. you think that's what it's going to be about, you're in for a bunch of surprises. Because the first two stories follow the formula to a T. Yet there's nothing boring about them. Let's talk about Othniel. In verses 7 to 12. So I'm jumping, jumping right in. It's, it's probably the cleanest cycle that we have. It fits the formula to a T. There's hardly a wasted word. It's all down here, hill from there. None of the remaining cycles, though, are anything as neat and clean as this first one. Othniel fits it almost perfectly. But even there, there's a twist. Who is Othniel? Who is this guy? Verse, verse 9 says that he is the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. We read in Judges 1, verse 13, that Othniel was both Caleb's nephew and son-in-law. So who is Caleb? We've got to do a little bit of genealogy work. He was one of the spies who explored the land of Canaan. If you remember, going back in your biblical history time, Caleb went into the promise to kind of scout it out and see, is it safe for us to go in? What is this land flowing with milk and honey? And he was one of the spies who explored Canaan and said, in faith, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. He's, he was one of the, the heroes of the faith, this guy named Caleb. But here's what you also need to know about this hero of the faith, Caleb, who said, take the land. Joshua 14, verse 6, calls him a Kenizzite. A Kenizzite. Kenizzites. They are not really Israelites. Caleb's name literally means dog. No self-respecting Jewish or Israelite person would ever name their son dog, and neither should you. You should not do that. And, and so this first judge, even though he follows the formula perfectly, all six pieces in there, 
He still breaks the mold. The first judge to rescue Israel isn't even an Israelite. And he's probably not all that young. God uses outsiders to get his work done. And the third judge mentioned in verse 31. Did you notice how much attention Shamgar gets? One verse. One verse. He also breaks the mold. Verse 31 says, After him, Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, he also saved Israel. There is none of the six elements found in that one tiny verse. From what to make out from this name, Shamgar was a Canaanite member of Possibly a Canaanite warrior, part of a Canaanite warrior gang who was roaming the highlands of Canaan administering justice, much like Conan the, the Barbarian. How many of you get that reference right there? Okay, about three of you, four of you. Conan the Barbarian, going out administering justice. The guy who is rough around the edges. And God has used somebody who is not only not an Israelite to deliver Israel, he used a pagan foreigner, outsider, who does not know God. Isn't that funny how God works? That God does not choose or to limit himself to use just those who are in Christ Jesus. And that should give us also hope in how we look outside into this world. God may be using people outside of the church, outside of our faith, to accomplish his purposes. Think about that. So in both Othniel and Shamgar, we do see that God uses outsiders. He uses people that we wouldn't think of as even options. We're using them? You, you would never expect that God would use a total pagan, somebody who is outside of the family, that God often uses the most unlikely people to get his work done. That's how God often works. But there's nothing that prepares us for the story that is sandwiched in between these two outsiders. It's the story of Ehud in verses 12 to 30. And I have to warn you, this is a story that you do not tell your kids at bedtime, right? You don't, or if you have the grandkids over, you don't just honey, about this wonderful story about Ehud. It'll give nightmares if you tell it correctly. To begin with, you need to hear this. I love how God has a sense of humor, and it's often in the details, which we can quickly read over, gloss over if we don't really pay attention. To begin with, Ehud's name is made up of two Hebrew words. I know you don't know your Hebrew all that well, neither do I, but in, in sitting in it in this week, it, 
Those two words, when taken together, means where's the glory or where's the honor? And as we begin to begin reading his story, we're meant to ask the question, where is the glory? Where is the honor? What happened to Israel that they are in so much trouble? And this story gives us an answer. But it's a different kind of answer than you might be expecting. You have this man named Eglon, the king of Moab, who conquers Israel for 18 years. And for some of you, that would be the majority of your life or all of your life. That this big man had been dominating Israel for 18 years. Ehud, where's the glory? Eglon, his name means calf. So you have this surprising detail, right? About Eglon's appearance. It is not politically correct. He is described as a a man with curves. But scripture goes really clear. He's a very fat man. He's a very fat man. And biblical narratives never just throw in random comments about somebody's appearance if there's not a purpose. So whenever it does, whenever scripture gives some very clear descriptions of a person's appearance, there's always a reason. And the reason here is that the narrator is having some fun and foreshadowing what is going to be happening because ultimately this king who has been ruling over Israel for 18 years is really a fattened calf. He's a fattened calf. But you also have this physical description of a judge, right? Of a judge who is a left-handed judge. A fat calf. He says he is Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. And if you do a study in the Bible about being right-handed, you find that it is all very positive. So congratulations. How many of right are right-handed here? You're all in the right. How many of you are left-handed? Explains everything. <laughs> So no offense to you who are left-handed, but when scripture talks about being right-handed, this is what it says. The right hand in the Bible is a symbol of power and of, of authority. God swears by how? His right hand. And it also says that pleasures are found at the right hand of God. Ultimately, where is Jesus sitting? At the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the heavens and the earth. Right? So it's all good news. Right-handed. But what you have here is a man who is left-handed from the tribe of Benjamin, which means son of the right hand. So you have a left-handed man from the right-handed tribe. All kinds of plays on words here. And you also have this fattened calf as a king and a left-handed man from the right-handed tribe. The last person that you would ever expect God to be using. You would think that you would have a right-handed man from the right-handed tribe to kill this fat king. But no. 
God doesn't do that. Then you have this crude description of a series of events, right? Ehud pays tribute to Eglon in Eglon's palace in Jericho, a place where he came to collect his tributes. There are some um, archaeologists who believe that they have actually found his palace. It's not a huge place, but it was a structure that is small enough for this very big man with wide doors to come in and to collect all the tribute from the area. In any case, after he has collected the tribute, Ehud leaves. And then he comes back with a secret message. This kind of James Bond music kind of starts rolling, right? In Hebrew, the message can mean a word, a matter to share, or a thing. And in this case, it's, it, it, it's, it's a different message than ultimately what Eglon was expecting. He was probably expecting an additional gift, a secret gift, or, or maybe a word about uh, other... And, and so look at what he got, though, right? You read in verse 19 that Eglon, he hears that... A, a, some kind of secret message, something is going to be given to him. And so what does he do? He dismisses all of the, the guards. Why would he ask to be left alone with a, a member who is a potential enemy? Probably because nobody thought that a left-handed man would be a threat. Probably because they had already searched him the normal way, looking for weapons on the, the appropriate side. Or maybe Eglon was a very greedy man and wanted to receive a gift only for himself. And you can almost sense the excitement. Again, put yourself into the narrative as an Israelite hearing this story. You already know the outcome. Eglon dismisses the guards and with some effort, probably using the chair's sides, he rises from the chair, remembering he is a very fat man, rises from the chair and Ehud approaches him again and says, from God for And Eglon's going, tell me. Give it to me. Ehud takes his left hand, draws this 18-inch dagger from his right thigh, where he, they probably had not frisked him, and he plunges the dagger deep into Eglon's body, and it is swallowed up by the fat. And Ehud ex escapes. And the children of Israel, woohoo, celebrates. But then you have the story of the guards, right? The guards are, are begin to wonder, what's going on? What's taking him so long? But from the smell coming from the room, they've got an idea of what is going on. That is why every woman in America would love to have separate restrooms from their husbands. 
There's an odor emanating from that room. And so the guards are going, we know what's going on. He's relieving himself in the cool chamber because he's probably working up a sweat in the cool chamber. So let's give him some time alone. But then it started getting really embarrassing, the amount of time that he was spending in the cool chamber relieving himself. And ultimately, they said, we have got to go in. They unlocked it, and what did they find? They found there their king was dead. And as a result, 10,000 Moabites are killed. Israel is delivered from its enemies and they have peace for, did you notice how many years? 80 years. 80 years of peace. So the writer is making a number of different statements here. He's making fun of Eglon the fattened calf, the king that God even strengthened, according to verse 12, that king becomes a pile of oozing excrement, a pile of smelly feces, and a corpse. You're wondering, how are you getting the gospel into this, Paul, right? Just hold on. And then he's also, the, the, the writer is making reference to Ehud, a left-handed man from the right-handed tribe, is the last person that people would think would be deliver Israel. And he does it not with amazing military prowess, he does it with cunning treachery. So on top of that, you also have moral ambiguity of what has happened. There is no question that God used Ehud to deliver deliver Israel. But what do we do with this treachery? God does not in any way in this section verses 12 through 30 there is nowhere you are finding that God is sanitizing this assassination right? You don't see God kind of pulling out the the Clorox wipes or the the Lysol wipes and cleaning it all up and saying, okay, we need to make this look a little cleaner, a little purtier. In fact, we are told that the Lord raised up a deliverer. God raised up a deliverer. Did you hear that? He did not say a murderer. He didn't say an assassin. He didn't say a liar. He didn't say a deceiver. He said a deliverer, a Savior for Israel. This, my friends, is a story actually of salvation. It's a story of salvation. The the focus of the story is not, why does God get himself all mixed up with characters like Ehud? But see how God delights, delights to save his people in their afflictions. We are not to see the problems God creates, but the salvation that he brings. So we're left wondering, what does this all mean? So let me try with the last two questions. What does this story tell about us and what does it tell us about God? First, What does it tell us about us? There's a cartoon in the New Yorker. 
of a, a grandfather, a father, and a grandson walking down a city street. And uh, the grandfather is declaiming loudly to everyone's annoyance this, quote, everything was better back when everything was worse. And I think some of us, honestly, has, have kind of this airbrushed idea of times back when, whenever that is, of when God was alive and well and when people were godly and they, they had their acts together. And this is not a political statement. It's, but it's kind of like, make America great again. When was that? Much like this, America was never great. We never had our act together. We never were just godly, pure, puritanical, wonderful people. Much like Israel. We never had their act together. They never did. Neither do we. We think if, man, if we would have, if we only lived during that ideal time, or we think, man, if we only lived at the time of the Puritans, or whenever we think that golden age is, we read some of the worst types of biographies in which there are no rough edges, everything is cleaned up, and everybody is above average. If you read some of these biographies done today for political gain, these people are wonderful beautiful, airbrushed people, when in reality, you know. But by extension, we think, if only we could get our acts together. If only I could arrive at a time when I am finally free from doubt, when my schedule is clear, when everything that I do Ah, everything that I do comes from a pure heart. There's only, there's, there's two problems with that view. The first is there has never been and never will be a time when God's people have it all together. And second, if there was, then it would be all about us and not about God. We wouldn't need grace. We would be the heroes instead of God. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, says that we sometimes read the Bible and say, look at these people. Look at what they're doing. They're supposed to be moral exemplars, aren't they? What kind of people are these? I don't want to read about this. And when we read it this way, Tim Keller says that we are misreading the Bible. He says this, and I quote from one of his sermons. If you ever feel that way about reading the Bible, it shows that you don't really don't understand the message of the Bible. You're imposing your understanding of the message on the Bible. You're assuming that the message of the Bible is God blesses and saves those who live morally exemplary lives. Message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God persistently and continuously gives his grace to people who don't ask for it. Who don't deserve it. And don't even fully appreciate it even after they get it. That's 
the message of the Bible. That's our story. Here, according to the Bible, this is who God uses. Complete mess-ups. Am I talking to any of you right now? Complete mess-ups. Completely unqualified people. People with glaring personality and character defects. People who, who we would say we are, are completely unusable by God. Sinners. Are any of you here today sinners, messed up, messed up, completely unqualified? Anybody here have glaring personality or character defects? The answer is yes. You can, you can nod your head. Are, are, does anybody feel unusable by God? Improbable characters are, are almost the norm in the Bible. It doesn't justify the mess or the sin, but it doesn't stop God from working either. God uses mess-ups. He uses the most unlikely people. And he can even, my friends, he can even use, he can use you. And when he does, it won't be because of how great you are. It won't be because of how you've got your act together. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do when God uses you, it is because of how great our God is. Whenever God uses you and me, our complete mess up, it's in spite of ourselves. And only because of his grace. That's why Tim Keller says that the biggest problem for us isn't our capabilities or our resume. Keller says this. Listen to this. And this is a, a leadership quote. Most churches make the mistake of selecting as leaders the confident, the competent, and the successful. Huh? But what you need most in a leader is someone who has been broken by the knowledge of his or her sin and even greater knowledge of Jesus's costly grace. The number one leaders in every church ought to be the people who repent the most fully without excuses. Because you don't need any now. You don't need any excuses now. The most easily without bitterness, the most publicly and most joyfully, they know their standing isn't based upon their performance. It's all about grace. It's all about grace. And it's all that you need to know. He uses people who are not all cleaned up, who are not all pretty on the outside. God always gets his work done, and he doesn't use cardboard cutouts. It's not always the neat, and it's not always the nice. That doesn't justify, even justify Ehud's actions, but somehow, somehow God weaves his deliverance into human choices, even those choices that are not the best choices. God gets his work done, and he often uses ways that we could not even imagine.
And some of you need to hear this. That God can use Ehud's. And by extension, God can use you. And it's never because you have it all together. It's always because of God's grace. But here's the final question. So we've talked about what is crude and disturbing, and we've looked at what does this say about ourselves. We've got to ask the final question. What does this say about God? What we need to understand in this story is, I believe, the, the character of God. The reason why Israel flirted with the, the Canaanite gods is because they had domesticated living God. They've domesticated the living God who had saved them and brought them out of the land of Egypt and had given Canaan to them. They had presumed upon his mercy. God had every reason, every reason to give up on Israel. Time and time and time again, he, he told them what to do. He told them how to be holy. He told them how to pursue health and spirituality and growth. But what did they do? They chased after idols. He had no reason to rescue them yet again. And yet in his mercy and his grace, he delivered them from the hands of their enemy. That's how our God is. And when he did so, he didn't use somebody who had his act together. He used methods and he used people that we would never, ever expect. Just like when God saved the world. His method of salvation was the last thing that anyone would have ever predicted. It was not on anybody's radar that this is how God is going to save the world. One commentator, Michael Wilcock, wrote this. Who would have predicted that when the judge came himself in the flesh, he would have come as a left-handed person with no form or comeliness that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him despised and rejected but Isaiah in Isaiah 53 said this but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his wounds, we are healed. Friends, how would you live if you understood that God is greater than anything that you see around you? That he never breaks his promises. That his grace, in his grace, he never gives up on you. How would you live differently if you really believed that and understood that, that God never gives up? How would you live if you believed that he works through the most unlikely people, the most unlikely situations, and even the most unlikely churches? And 
that in Jesus and through the Spirit, He has given us everything that we need. How would you live differently? How would our lives change if we believe that God, that God is actually at work in our messes? Some of you, Paul included, believe that God cannot work in my life until I get my stuff together. I've got to purdy up, I've got to clean up, I've got to holy up before God can use me. But what does this say? God doesn't wait for you to clean up. God works in the midst of our messiness. Imagine if God is actually the hero not only of this text, but God is actually the hero of our lives. Imagine if we didn't just believe this intellectually, but we actually lived in light of this promise. Do you remember what the meaning of Ehud's name was? Where's the glory? Where's the honor? This story answers that question. The glory of God can be found even in our messes. It can be found when God goes to work even in the most unlikely places of our lives. But the tragedy of the story is that Ehud, Ehud is not a totally adequate savior, right? Nothing Ehud did could change the hearts of Israel. He could not release Israel from the bondage of their, their sin or rip out the idols that are in their hearts. The tragedy of the people of God is slavery to sin. And there is no left-handed savior Spilling the guts of foreign kings that can even release you from the bondage. Our real bondage does not consist of Moabites or fat kings or physical or economic depression. No left-handed savior, no 12-step or 12 program or even church attendance can break you free from the tyranny of sin. But there is one, my friends with nail-scarred hands who can and does. The only tragedy in our story will be if having this kind of Savior that we do not cry out to Him for help. For God raised up for us a deliverer. He is the better He's the better Ehud. He, God raised up for us a Savior, Jesus Christ, who saved His people. His people from their sins. And my friends, this is the good news of the gospel as found in 
Judges chapter 3. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray.